So everybody excited, looking forward to more snow? All right, man, most of the people, yeah, there's a few boos and hisses out there, but not too many, the overwhelming sense of excitement. Well, it's great to have you here with us this morning, and uh, as we were, as, as I was navigating through the snow experience yesterday, um, I got up and was saw that the snow had come down, like it, they said it would, and heard my son and one of his buddies downstairs, so I yelled down, hey, you guys want to go down and get the snowblower going and get things started? And they're like, yeah, I'll get, yeah we'll get things started, and... Uh, and I knew that they knew how to do that because last year, um, in the uh, the 12 days that my wife and I were away in Hawaii, it snowed almost every other day. So my son got lots of experience on navigating the snowboard through that experience. So I knew they knew how to do it. So, so I'm upstairs in our upstairs bathroom. I'm getting ready, and I, I kind of see them out there. They get it out, and I'm watching them. They're pulling, pulling, nothing, you know. He calls his buddy over there. He's pulling, pulling, nothing, and not starting, and uh so they're like, not sure what to do. They kind of look at things and then go back to pulling. And I'm like, okay, this is kind of one of those dad moments where I'm like, okay, how much do I get involved? You know, do I let them figure it out themselves or do I jump in and rescue them? I, I'm going to let them squirm for a little bit more. So I let them try to figure it out a little bit more. They kept trying and trying. Finally, I got ready and went outside and I was like, what's the problem? Like, this, this thing won't start, you know, it, it won't start, you know. Well, I knew that I had started it two days before in one pull, so I knew it would start. So I went over and looked at it, and I was like, hey, guys, come on over here. And I was like, you see this little lever? At the bottom, it says off. You've got to push it up. That's the kill switch. You don't want that down on the off position when you start. And you see this thing called the throttle? You've got to put it over here where you start it. You know, where it has a little looking like a key turning on. You know, you turn that back. And the, oh, oh. And so I go over there, pulled it. You know, sure enough, start up right away on one pull. You know, one of those dad moments that kind of show up the young bucks, you know. so, um, But... Uh, it was a case in which in that situation, that experience, we had to go back to the very beginning, back to the basics. Even though they'd done this for a long period of time and navigated a lot, had to go back to the beginning and say, let's go back to square one and start at the very beginning. And, and the truth is, I think we all know that in life there's a lot of things like that, right? I mean, if your kid wants to see, if you've got a younger child and they see someone uh, doing tricks on a bike, you know, that's what they want to do. But the first thing they got to do is figure out how to get those two feet off the ground, right? And start pedaling without you holding on and no extra wheels there before they can move forward. You know, you have to master algebra, which of course, unfortunately I never did, before you can get to trig and pre-calc and calculus, right? That's the way things have to go. When you start in a new job and career, you have to get your feet on the ground and sometimes you have to do stuff you really don't want to do before you gain opportunities to do more things. It's a lot like that as parents, isn't it? You know, It's a good thing God doesn't give us kids when they're teenagers first. You know, kind of have to raise them as toddlers. Kind of gives you a, a test run for what it's going to be like as teenagers. You, know? you make it through that, well, guess what? You got another challenge ahead, and this is what that's going to look like. And this morning we're going to talk about something that I really think applies to everyone here, no matter whether you're a person of faith or not, no matter where you are out on your spiritual journey, we're going to talk about something that I think everybody here likely has probably done, and that's pray. Pray. Because you know what I've realized and what I've learned is it doesn't matter whether you're a person of faith or doesn't want anything to do with God. When life falls apart, guess what you do? You pray. And when you want something and you can't find a way to get it, what do you do? Ask God for it. And so I think what we're going to talk about this morning affects everyone regardless of where you are on your journey. If you haven't been here with us, we've been in this series on the Sermon on the Mount titled Sitting at the Feet of Jesus. And the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' most famous message. And in this message, he presents to his followers a different way of living life. 
different way of living life. And ironically, he's not presenting this message to irreligious or non-religious people. He's presenting it to very religious people. The Jews, who they had all kinds of laws and rules, and they lived by these. And he said, I want to present to you a different way. Because there is a kingdom that's coming. It's close by, and it's my kingdom. And this is what life in my kingdom is going to be like. And you know what? You're going to be surprised by who's in and who's not. And he said, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, there's some ways you're going to relate to one another that are going to be totally different than the way you used to relate. He said, I'm not going to tell you to do more. I'm going to invite you to do something completely different, totally different than what you've done before in relationship to anger, in relationship to lust, in relationship to conflict, in relationship to marriage, in relationship to keeping promises as we looked at over the last number of weeks. And then last week, he takes a little bit different tone because he kind of um, ends that part of the message of this trade-off of way, what life in the kingdom is like if you want to enter that. And he says, you know, let's talk about what you're currently doing. And so he goes through some religious activities that they did, giving to the poor, prayer, fasting. And he says, you know what matters most to God? You know what matters most to me in my kingdom? is not what you're doing. It's why. It's your motive. The motive of your heart. That's what matters most to me. God doesn't say you should give more to the poor. It's not what he said. He said, why are you doing it? He doesn't say you should pray more. He says, why are you doing it? He doesn't say you should fast more. He says, why are you doing it? And he offers us an alternative. If you're struggling with your motive in these areas, there's some ways that you should consider doing this radically different to alter the motive of your heart. Because he says, if your motivation, if the core of what drives you to do all these things is not out of an overwhelming love and devotion and gratefulness to God for all that he's done for you, then you're just doing that to look good to other people. To look good for your spouse, parents for your kids, kids for your parents, friends, people in your small group, pastors. You're just trying to make a good impression for them if your motivation is not driven out of a heart of love. And so my challenge to you last week is to look at what you're doing. Look at what religious, spiritual activities you are doing. And as you participate in them this week, to ask yourself the hard question, why do I do this? Why do I do this? Because Jesus is more concerned about why you do it than what you do. And that's what life in his kingdom is like. In the middle of those three areas that he talks about, and we skipped over it last week, and we're going to spend this week and next week, there's a prayer that Jesus spoke about. And this prayer is probably the most well-known prayer that Jesus ever prayed. It's called the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. Now, in some faith traditions, this is said on a weekly basis. So um, if you have been in a church experience for any season of your life where this was said on a week-in, week-out basis, can you raise your hands? Let me just see your hands. Okay, a lot less. First service, it was the, a large majority of them, so a lot less in this service. And so sometimes the question is, should this be something that we repeat over and over again, this whole idea of the Lord's Prayer? Well, I think it's yes and no. Yes and no. You say, what do you mean, John? Well, um, when you are teaching kids, I have a, a first grade teacher, right, Diane? First grade? First grade? K-12. 
kindergarten. I have a kindergarten teacher here on the front row. So when, when you're teaching kindergartens and you're trying to learn their ABCs, usually teach them a song or something that they can remember, right? That's what you teach them. Now, when your kids get to be about 10 years old, you probably don't ask them to say that song, do you? No, no. But if you start to sing it, guess what? They can do what? They can sing along. Why? Because they heard it over and over and over and over again. And it's just embedded in their memory as part of who they are. Now, for some of us, you've grown up in an experience, you've had time in a church experience where you've repeated the Lord's Prayer regularly. And what I've discovered is people who've had that experience go one of two directions. Some of them like, oh yeah, they just droned on that thing every single week. We didn't know about it, man. We didn't know what it was all about. And it, I was like, no, that was really meaningful. It kind of sunk in. It was part of my faith journey. And I kind of think that this, the Lord's Prayer should be one of those basic foundational things that I'm not sure in my faith experience we found a way to embed that into our heart and soul. It's kind of the foundation about how we pray so that we can periodically come back to it over and over and over again. It's interesting that this prayer starts with my, our Father, not my Father. It's, a, it's really a corporate prayer designed to be said together. And maybe something we need to think through is when are the times and opportunities for us to say this together, to bring us back to that? Before we take a look at the prayer, we're going to look at the verses preceding that. If you have your Bibles, if you turn to Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6. Um, if you don't have a Bible, our guys have some, and they're going to pass them out. Page 787 is the Bibles that they're passing out. Matthew chapter 6, or um, page 787, Bibles that they're passing out. Trying to connect to our network here. The word is connected, all lower cases. You should be able to connect to that. And let's start by taking a look back at a verse we looked at last week, uh, verse 7. He says this, When you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans. They'll think they'll be heard because of their many words. Verse 8. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Jesus is talking to Jewish people, and prayer was a part of their way of life. It, over time, and I, I don't believe in what I know about the Bible, I don't believe this is something God ever told them they should do, but they had established three times a day when they, were to, when they would pray. Praying the first thing when, the, when they woke up in the morning, when the sun came up, um, in the middle of the day, approximately at 3 o'clock, they would pause to pray. And then in the evening when the sun went down, when life usually stopped. Beginning of the day and end of the day makes sense, kind of acknowledging God and talking to him. And somewhere along the way, the middle of the day um, began. And in some of the monastic communities, they have seven different times during the day where they stop and pray. They're called fixed hours of prayer where they pray. And, and so I'm not sure where that came about, but it was very, very... Uh, expected that Jews would pray. And when they prayed, apparently some of their prayers had gotten long and never-ending. And that's what Jesus says to them in verse 7. He says, don't be like, call some pagans, because they think if they have a lot of words to say, they're going to be heard. But instead, Jesus offers a different way. Look what he says in verse 9. He says this, this is how you then should pray. And, and literally what Jesus is going to do, he's going to teach us how to pray. 
Now, if I took a poll this morning and asked how many of you have ever been taught how to pray, my guess is there would not be many of us. We're taught all kinds of things in life. We're taught all kinds of things, even as kids, about who God is and about stories about the Bible. But, but I wonder how often we have been taught how to pray. And so really what Jesus does is he kind of takes us back to the very beginning, back to the basics, back to the ABCs, if you will, and says, let me teach you about prayer. And so he teaches us about prayer. There's two things that we're going to focus on this morning. The first part of this prayer is what I'm going to call declaring God's greatness or declaring his greatness. Declaring his greatness. It's interesting that the prayer begins in verse 9. It begins with our Father. Our Father. For the Jewish people, there was uh, 18 different ways they would begin prayers. One of the most famous ones was God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, kind of remembering their patriarchs of their faith and other things like Mighty One and Holy Father, you know, all different kinds of things. But the one Jesus chose was our Father. And that word's very meaningful. In, in the, the Arabic, which is what the common language of the day was spoken, that word was Abba, which means Daddy. What's often the first word that kids learn to say? Daddy, right? In most Arabic communities, that's often the first word that they're taught, is the word Abba, which means Father. It's a word that pictures relationship. It's a word that pictures connection. But for some of you, when you hear the word father, you kind of, maybe not visibly, but internally you shudder because that's not a word that pictures those things for you. For you, that's a word that pictures pain and abandonment and abuse. And the truth is that was often the way fathers functioned in the ancient Near Eastern culture. Because they were usually distant from their children. They were usually harsh towards their wives. And so when Jesus is describing a father, how were they to have any sense of what a father was to be like? Well, I think one story in the book of Luke, the the gospel of Luke that pictures that for us is the story of the prodigal son. If you don't know that story, it's a story that Jesus made up and told about a young man who grew up in a fairly well-to-do family. And he got to this point in his life, likely in his early teens, where he said, Dad, I'm done with everything you're doing here. I want to strike out on my own. And by the way, I want everything that's coming to me. And his father gave it to him, and he left. He left and went and lived well, made a lot of friends, spent all of his money, lost all of his friends, the story finds him fighting with the hogs over food. In the midst of this struggle over with the hogs over the food, he remembered that his father's servants ate better than them than him. And he said, you know what? Maybe I should just throw myself at the mercy of my father and say, Dad, I'm I'm willing to come back. I'll work as a servant. Don't treat me as your son. I'll work as a servant. I just would like a good meal and right now I'm not even getting one of those. And so the story, tell, the story goes on and it, it pictures a son kind of coming down the, down the road and kind of coming to the edge where his family's property is there. And as the father sees his son there, the, the story goes on to say that the father ran to the son. Now that might not seem so odd to us, but in that culture, fathers didn't run. Fathers were dignified. 
Fathers paced and strolled and walked. Fathers did not run. And so this father reacted in a way that this son had never seen, never known, never experienced. And as the, as the, son, uh, the father approached the son, the father wrapped his arms around him. And he says, my son. And the son then goes into his practice spiel of, you know, dad, I, I really blew it. I messed up and I'm just, I just want to live here as a servant. And the father says, no, 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 no. And the, father, the story goes on to say that he wrapped him in his robe and he put his ring on his finger and he called all of his servants and said, kill the fatted calf. It's time to celebrate because my son has come home. And in that story, what that son discovered was a picture of God. A picture of a God who loves, who forgives, who's good, who's compassionate and caring. And as Henry Nowen said, and those things know no limit. A father who's loving, compassionate, caring, good, and gracious, and they know no limit. And that's the picture of a father that God longs for us to have. And so he says, as you begin to pray, as you begin to approach God, will you begin to recognize that you have a Father in heaven who relates to you and cares for you like that? But then notice he says, a Father in heaven, because it's almost as if that, um, that amazing relationship with this Father, there's a, there's a distance there. Because that Father is in heaven and I am not. And it pictures for us a father who's relationally close, but distant and great. And when we think about God and we think about who he is, we need to remind ourselves that we are the created ones and that he is the creator, that we are the servants and that he is the master, that we are born and that we die and that God is eternal, that God is approachable yet lives in the heavens in the awesomeness of his glory. And so when we declare his greatness, when we talk about God, when we pray to God, he wants us to begin by recognizing that there is a father who knows and loves us, but there's a father who's distant and great and is all-powerful and can do whatever he delights. He goes on to make this phrase. He says, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is not a word that we use a lot. And another way to understand that might be just to use the word holy. Holy is your name. We think about the idea of something being holy. It means something that's separate or distinct from everything else. And that's what God is. And yet God's name represents an individual's person and their character and who they are. And so how do I, how do I make God's name holy? I think a way to understand that is to think about what is it that makes this name of God, this holiness of God, what is it about that that makes him so distinct from everything else that's been, every other person that's alive or has ever been alive? And what makes him unique and distinct is that God is perfect and without sin. And no one else can lay claim to that. And so he's perfect and without sin, but the reality is, is if I'm honest, I'm sinful. Isaiah the prophet, when he was confronted with God's holiness, fell on his face before him and said, woe is me, or I can't even lift my head in your presence. He said, I'm a person with words and a mouth that says things that are inappropriate, and I live among people that do the same thing. 
So how does this God who is loving and gracious and wants to have a relationship with me but is distant and yet I have to celebrate his holiness? I think maybe a way to understand that it comes from the prophet Hosea, a prophet in the Old Testament who I believe was a real person. His story goes that he married a woman. Her name was Gomer. They had a couple children. And then she abandoned their marriage. She ran away from him. She decided she wanted to live on her own. She got drawn into likely into the she got drawn into prostitution, likely into a temple cult. And she was a part of that for a period of time. At some point in time they were done with her and they discarded her and she was about to be sold as a slave on the open market. God said to Hosea, he said, I want you to go to this woman and I want you to marry her and bring her back into your life. And you think, why would God do that? How could, how could someone love a person who has wronged them so deeply and extend that to them? And I believe God called this prophet who was a spokesman for God so that the people of Israel who had done the exact same thing to God could see it in the life of a person, skin and bones, if you will. And so when we wrestle with this whole picture and we say, how does a God who loves me but is perfect and without sin, how, can he, how is it possible for him to have a relationship with me because of the fact and the reality that I am a sinful person? And it takes us to the cross. It takes us to the place where Jesus hung on the cross to pay for my sins and for your sins. And so when we begin to pray and when we begin to talk to God, the place to start is declare His greatness. That He is a Father who deeply loves us and will do anything for us. But He's our God who is in the heavens, the creator and sustainer of all who loves us so much he was willing to give his one and only son to shed his blood on the cross so that he could enter that relationship with us forever. I don't know about you, but I don't often begin my prayers thinking about that. I'll usually acknowledge God. That's who I'm speaking to. But I don't usually spend a lot of time there. And as Jesus takes us back to the very beginning, back to the foundation, back to the ABCs of prayer, he said the place to start in talking to God is to declare his greatness. I want to give you a few minutes just to listen to some passages of Scripture about God. And you can turn in your Bibles, I'll tell you where I'm going to be at, or you can maybe write these down, or you can just sit quietly and listen. And then I'm going to give you about a minute just to talk to God and declare His greatness this morning. I want to start in Genesis chapter 1. It says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit was hovering. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So he made the vault and separated the water under the vault from above, from the water above. And so it was, and he called this the sky. 
And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it. And the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing seed, fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God said, let there be lights in the vaults of the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars and he set them in the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly across the heavens, across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the waters teem and that moves about it according to their kind. Every winged bird according to its kind. And then God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move on the ground, the wild animals according to its kind. And God made all of those things. Then God said, let's make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that he might rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and the livestock and all the wild animals and over every creature that moves. And God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female created he them. In Psalm 19, David says this. He says, when I look at the heavens, they declare God's glory. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day and night, uh, day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. From them, yet their voices go out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the earth. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heaven and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. In John 3, he writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And in 1 John 4, he also writes, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son in the world that he might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we should love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. I'd invite you to take the next moment, bow your heads, talk to God, declare his greatness. And I'll close by saying, Amen.
So what does this teach us about prayer? To begin my prayers with declaring God's greatness. I think it reminds me that God's always available. Never going to get clicked to voicemail or ignored or hidden from no matter how deep my pain is. Even when he seems far away. Reminds me of God's holiness and my sinfulness. Reminds me of his mercy and his compassion and his grace. I think the other thing that happens is the more I spend time focusing on the greatness of God, I start to think about the things that are my request a little differently. And the more I spend thinking about God, the more I spend remembering who he is, the more confidence that it gives me that he's going to be there with me and that I can talk with him about anything that's going on in my life. And so the first thing I think that God wants us to learn about prayer is to declare his greatness. The second one is to surrender your will. To surrender your will. Look at the next phrase in the prayer. The next phrase says this, Your kingdom come, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the whole idea of a kingdom is not something that we're very familiar with. And I think there's two different ways to look at this. I think there's a, a personal way to look at this and a global way to look at this. So let's talk first of all about the personal way. Because the truth is, the truth, way, the truth of the matter is, is if there's a kingdom, then we have to understand what is a kingdom. And one person defined it this way. They, say, they said a kingdom is the territory in which you control. The territory that you control. That's what your kingdom is. If you think about that, hmm, the territory that I control, what do I control? Well, I control my heart and my life and my mind and my thoughts. and I control me, don't I? Yeah, I, can, I control me. Um, and you're a pretty powerful person if you think about it. You know, I mean, just imagine there, a, a newborn baby, all they have to do is open their mouth and two grown adults come at their beckoning call willing to do whatever that child wants, right? You know, that's all they got to do is start crying. The parents say, what do we do? What do we do? We feed them, we change them. What do we do? You know, amazing control, amazing control. And we're born with it. We're born with it. And over time, we might not use tears. You know, we might use pouting or we might use a face or we might use whining. And then maybe as we get a little bit older, we go back to tears, you know, to try to get what we want. And, you know, sometimes we use anger. Sometimes we other, other things. But the reality is, is, I have control over myself and I do all kinds of things to get what I want. And I believe you do the same. Because what do you control? You control yourself, right? Who's the only person that control who's the only person that can change you? You, right? Nobody else can change you. Only you. Only you. And so what Jesus is inviting us in this prayer is he's inviting us to exchange the control of, your, of my heart and my will, turning that over to him. Instead of my kingdom and my will be done, he's saying, will you pray your kingdom and your will be done? It's not an easy prayer to pray. I think it is far easier to pray to, about declaring God's greatness than it is to pray about surrendering my will. I can do this all the time. I can celebrate God. He's a great God. He's amazing. He does good things. You know, awesome sunset. He provided this way. He's, you know, 
saved me and made a way for me to have a relationship with him. But now all of a sudden I have to talk about, I have to turn over control of this area of my life to him. And it's a different story. Take a minute and think about it and ask yourself, what percent of my prayers are about surrendering my will versus telling God what I want and I need? My guess is it's probably a lot of those, probably very few of these. And I think Jesus taught us that this is not an easy thing to do because you remember when he was in the garden and he knew what was coming. We're invited to pray this. We don't know what's coming, but he knew what was coming. He knew the cross was coming. He knew rejection was coming. He knew humiliation was coming. He knew death was coming. And the Bible tells us that he wrestled with God and there was sweat drops of blood over the wrestling that was taking place and eventually had to come to this place of saying what? Not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. And he says here on earth as it is in heaven. Who's in charge in heaven? Who's in charge? Anybody out there who's in charge? God is, right? God's kingdom, right? He's the one in charge. He's the one in charge. And the Bible tells us one day there's a day coming. The book of Revelation is all about that there's a day coming when this kingdom that rules in heaven will one day exist on this earth while he will rule as king. But until that takes place, he said, every day in your life, I want you to wrestle with and I want you to be willing to say to pray this prayer, God, not my will, but your will be done. You see, this is where the rubber meets the road for people of faith. It's relatively easy to declare God's greatness. It's not that difficult, as we're going to see next week, to declare my need. But the struggle is right in the middle where I have to decide if I'm going to surrender my will. I'd be more than happy to surrender my will if I knew what was coming. If I knew it was going to make my life a little easier, if I knew I wasn't going to have any more struggles. But the problem is we know different than that because we know when Jesus surrendered his will, what came for him? Hardest thing he had to ever experience in his life. I don't challenge you to do this believing that it's going to be an easy thing to do. Most Sunday mornings, before I get to church, before I come in here, I often will sit out in my car, read a little scripture, just kind of quiet there by myself. and Read this passage the last couple weeks. Jesus says, anyone who loves their father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. I keep reading this over and over again every week, saying, God, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? I think I I can say, you know, God, I I want you to be at work in my life. I want you to change me and transform me. I want you to use me. But the truth is, I don't like life to not go well. 
So I'm caught in the middle. I want to pray this prayer of submission, pray this prayer to God, but I don't like it when life does not go according to some kind of plan. I've just been saying this to God. God, I'm not quite sure what this would look like. This past week for me, probably the hardest week, I couldn't tell you when the last time I had a week this difficult. For me, I'm physically sick, personal challenges, struggles that people are going through that I was interacting with a variety of ways. I came to the end of the week and I found myself thinking, God, is that what that's going to look like? I'm not really sure I like it or I want to do that. I don't know what surrendering your will looks like for you. I don't know. You probably do. Maybe it's your future. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's something you and God have been going toe-to-toe about for a long period of time. And you're like, God, I, I don't know about that one. Because I'm not sure I like what you have planned for me. I'd love to be able to stand here and tell you, if you pray that prayer, this is what God's going to do in your life and it's going to be the most amazing thing and you're going to celebrate and I can't wait to hear next week what that's going to look like. But the truth is, that is not what God's Word says. And that's not the way life works. They say, John, why would I do that? Am I a fool? Why would I? Why would I? The only reason I know is because there's a God who loves me enough to give up what he treasured most, and that was his son, so that I could have a relationship with him, not only now, and his spirit present with me, and life with him forever. Apart from that, there's no reason. There's no reason. So what's it going to look like for you to pray that kind of a prayer? I want to challenge you to do something this week. Last night I was eating dinner and individuals around the table knew I was going to talk about prayer. So as soon as I got done praying, they said, so did you pray the way you're going to tell us to pray tomorrow? And I was like, no. (laughs) But I thought about it. But my challenge to you, my challenge for all of us this week, is to this week when you talk to God privately, when you talk to God with other people, when you talk to God at your meals, wherever you talk to God, is to do two things. To declare His greatness and surrender your will. Declare His greatness and surrender you all. Say, John, well, what about the stuff that's going on in my life? And what about the stuff that I need to talk to God about? And 
I guarantee you he knows about all that stuff and he won't forget this week. I'm pretty sure about that, okay? So I think if we put that in his hands this week, say, God, you know about these things. This week I want my attention to be on declaring your greatness and surrendering my will. No matter where and when you come to him to do those two things. And, and maybe you don't know what you're surrendering to. Maybe you just have to say, God, I don't know what you would like from me, but I want my heart to be open to you this week. And I want to celebrate the amazing God that you are. As we close this morning, Johnny and the team are going to come. They're going to lead us in a new song, one that we've used here before but never sang. And, you know, as they're coming and getting ready to do that, I just want to challenge you to think about this whole idea of prayer. Um, What I think God has invited us to do is he's invited us to take a step back towards the ABCs, the very beginning of what prayer looks like. And to make prayer not so much about my requests and my wants and the things that are important to me, but to make it about declaring that he is a great and amazing God who has given up what, I, what he treasures most for me, and that's his son. And then to say, God, am I willing to surrender my will to you? They're going to lead us in a song that's entitled Love Came Down, and um, 